When you think about applying for a practice loan, do you think about speed and simplicity? Likely not. For many veterinarians, applying for business loans can be a long and fatiguing process. Luckily, the sponsor of the podcast, Provide Inc., has changed all that. Provide is a specialty lender to the veterinary industry. They're the only, and I mean only, fully online and digital lender in the veterinary space, which makes life easy. You know I go on and on, and I'm so pro-practice ownership. I cannot be happier to have Provide be a sponsor. Whether you're in Maine or California, Provide can help. They aren't going to require you to open your savings account or jump through some hoops to get some sort of relationship discount on your loan. They're simply just going to say, here's our rate, this is the process, and we're going to do a good job. Provide uses innovative software and technology coupled with excellent service and an industry experience to deliver something that's just more efficient. Even on very complicated transactions, Provide can make a decision on whether they're going to lend in a mere five to seven business days. As we all know, time is money and having those answers quickly matters. Provide offers financing for practice acquisitions, buy-ins or buy-outs, commercial real estate, refinancing, practice remodels, all that stuff. Anything that you have around financing for your veterinary clinic and your business, they can help you with. So when you think about it, you can pre-qualify in minutes with no effect on your credit score. That's a benefit as well. For more information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see a hyperlink under the provide bio. That'll get you directly to where you can pre-qualify. You can do it on your couch. You can do it in 10 minutes or less. And if you do want to reach out directly to them, please let them know that I sent you. They'll take great care of you and they will be alongside you for one of the biggest purchases of your life and do a great job at it. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Bug, who is a real estate investor, which we'll talk quite a bit about real estate today, veterinarian and also entrepreneur. He is a co-founder of the Veterinary Project Podcast, which for those that aren't checking it out, is fantastic. I just saw you did a couple different episodes on practice financials, P&Ls and stuff. I'm going to check that out because I think that has been an area that I want to encourage people to look into that are owners. And Dr. Bug resides in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. I love saying that. So I had to get that in here as well. Thank you so much for joining me. This is going to be a blast. Yeah. Thanks, Isaiah. I'm looking forward to this. As soon as we connected, I think it was last year, September, the Veterinary Financial Summit is when we first met. And I've been looking forward to chatting with you since. Yeah, absolutely. You shared when we connected before we recorded this podcast, a story about going into your first day of work after kind of getting your DVM and saying, you know, like, here we go. I'm on my way. Tell me what was going through your mind. And I'm sure if someone's heard you multiple other times on podcasts, maybe heard this story, but I think it's a good place to start for maybe those that don't know you and kind of what drives you or drove you into this direction. Yeah. So, I mean, to set a little bit of the framework, I grew up on a farm. I was always fairly entrepreneurial. I was the type of kid that would grow pumpkins and corn and take them on the school bus and try to sell them to the teachers, that kind of thing. Go to vet school. I graduated in 2008. And I mean, I was excited for my first day, no doubt. But one thing that caught me off guard is I was driving to work. It was kind of a small town, little city. And I'm coming around this sort of ring road and I hit a red light and I stop. And I've never really had like, say, a panic attack per se. But I remember sitting there and being like, holy shit, like, what the hell have I done? And I'm just staring at this red light. And it felt like it went on and on for like minutes and minutes. And I felt so trapped because I was like, wow. I have to make this drive to a vet clinic, maybe not this one forever, but to a vet clinic for the nine to five for the next 30 or 40 years. And it just hadn't hit me 
until that point. Going through vet school, it's very exciting. You go through first year to second year to third year. There's always a target. There's always a goal. But when you finally graduate, it's like, okay, now what? Do I just do this for 30 years? And you know, that hit me really hard. I felt kind of trapped at that point. And I was like, wow, hopefully I've made the right choice. Did you initially, like when you got accepted into vet school, was it kind of the more traditional, I'm going to go be an associate, I'm going to buy someone out, I'm going to be a practice owner, and I want to be a business owner? Was that something that was a part of your plan initially, just knowing that you kind of had that entrepreneurial spirit as a young kid? Was that the initial thought process of becoming a veterinarian? It was there. It wasn't like a driving force. I always thought I would like go that way. I was going to be a mixed animal. Like I loved beef cattle, associate practitioner. And I thought climb that ladder and eventually buy in. That's what I thought my career would look like. And then you made the decision to not stay within kind of that traditional 30 year, I'm going to practice, I'm going to save, I'm going to do these different things. So kind of walk us through what decisions or how did you start to think about opportunities outside of veterinary medicine? Yeah. So, I mean, this all started again from another story in 2008. So 2008, for those that remember, it was a year where the financial markets collapsed, the housing market, like especially in the States, things were really collapsing and there was a ton of financial uncertainty. And previous to that, I always thought I'm a veterinarian. I have a good job. I'm going to save money. I'm going to invest it in mutual funds. And that's just the way my finances are going to be. And it will all work out. And then I get into veterinary practice and I start seeing other veterinarians that have been veterinarians for 30 years. They're on the end of their career. They're supposed to be riding off into the sunset retiring. The financial markets just start collapsing. And now there's all this uncertainty to the point that some of them even came back to work. Like they had retired and all of a sudden they're back picking up shifts. And that made me think, wow, maybe I need to do something different. Like maybe everything I've been taught isn't what I should be doing. So that's what planted the seed. I had no clue it was going to be real estate at that time, but it started this journey of me like reading books and diving into different personal finance, investing. Eventually, I think it took me like two years to actually find real estate and start pulling the trigger on some real estate investing. When people hear real estate, I think the term passive income is associated with that. So sometimes people laugh and chuckle and I can see you smile. And those that are listening to this, obviously, as the podcast can't see the smile, but was it passive at the beginning? And then maybe let's talk about how that's transitioned over time. So 2008, a couple of years, so call it 2010, 2011, was that the first time that you purchased a real estate property and kind of what did that look like? Yeah, 2010 was my first real estate purchase. That one was a fix and flip. So that was purchased with the intention of putting in a lot of sweat equity and then selling it in the future at hopefully a higher price. I learned a lot in that experience. Mostly I learned that's not what I want to keep doing. So I consider my official start in real estate to be 2012 because that's when I bought my first actual rental property where I held it long-term. We still own it to this day where we rent it out. We collect rent every month and have held it long-term. And so what did you learn from that initial experience that made you say, hey, I don't want to do the sweat equity. I don't want to do the fix and flip. And then do you work with partners now that are doing some of the rent collection and do you kind of outsource that? Or are you still very much hands-on or what does that look like for you today? Yeah, so it's changed a lot. And this is a great question and something we can really unpack 
because especially for the veterinarians listening, it can be a massive myth that real estate is passive because it was the furthest thing from passive when I started. It was literally another job, right? So I'm going, I'm working as a veterinarian, coming home from work, trying to flip this house, which means, you know, like hammering the nails, doing the painting. And so it was like balancing two full-time jobs. And the reason I stepped more away from that is, to be honest, I'm just not very good at like carpentry and handyman work. So as we moved into rentals, for the first few years, we still did it all. Like we managed, you know, I would screen the tenants, I would collect the rent. If they had an issue, they would call me, it'd be my phone ringing. And so I just want to be really clear for vets listening, if they choose to take it on themselves, it's not passive. It's a full on side hustle. And then as we grew our portfolio, we started to outsource some of that stuff. So now as it sits today, property management is outsourced. If we have a renovation project, I'm going to be bringing on contractors and carpenters who are skilled in that area. So I'm more just organizing, but I'm not the one in there actually swinging the hammer. Can you give listeners a thought of kind of how many properties that maybe you currently own? Have you done a deal recently? I think you mentioned right before we pressed record that you went through a deal. So I'd like to talk through that because I think anyone that's listening knows real estate is extremely hot right now. And there's a lot of interest, but it seems like it's harder to find the deal. Like in 2011, it's probably easier to find an opportunity. Can you talk a little about A, what your portfolio looks like today? And is it just single family? Is it duplex? Like what kind of properties do you invest in? What does that look like? So our portfolio is kind of the story of two very distinct portfolios. We have a collection. I think we have about 10 single family homes, which have basement suites in them. And they're very nice. Like 2012 is our oldest house. So 2012 and newer, high quality houses, really solid tenants. And that was done because that's what we were purchasing when I was a veterinarian, like practicing. And so I needed as low of maintenance as possible. I needed the fewest tenant hassles as possible. So we bought those properties on purpose. Starting in 2018, when we realized we really wanted to start scaling our portfolio, that's when we started buying apartment buildings. And apartment buildings versus single family homes can be very different, very different from a management standpoint. But that's when we started bringing on property managers. And we've scaled that. We just bought a 12plex April 1st. I'm not sure when this is going out, but May 7th, we get another 8plex. That'll be our sixth apartment building. So we kind of have these two very distinct portfolios right now. Moving forward, the intention is sell off the single family homes keep growing the apartments, potentially get into commercial spaces as well at some point. Have you sold properties that you've purchased in the past? And what has that process been? Because obviously for every buyer, so when you were there in 2012, you were saying, hey, this is a good deal. I'm going to buy this. And then obviously when you're selling it, maybe there's some other rhyme or reason, but can you talk about, have you gone through that process? And then how are you still able to find those opportunities? And is it just like your network has grown and you've just realize that? Have you built relationships? How are you kind of finding the opportunities that are out there today? Yeah. So for the first part, we are just starting to sell some properties now. I'm very much a buy and hold investor. Like I believe in the power of collecting that monthly rent check, letting your mortgage pay down. So from the very start with those houses, we always plan to sell them around 10 years, just because then things are starting to get older and we didn't want to get into a bunch of maintenance issues. So we're just starting to sell those now. In terms of finding deals, 
That is the million dollar question. So that is where I spend a large portion of my time currently. So I do a lot of off market marketing. So what that means is trying to track down apartment building owners privately, right? I'm not waiting for it to come online and say, hey, we're for sale. We really look for things where we can add value. So under renovated or under managed property. So you're looking for signs of basically absentee owners, right? Like is the lawn not taken care of? Are there broken windows? Things where you can go in, solve problems and increase the value. That makes complete sense because once it comes to the market, just like with anyone that's maybe looked at a single family home that they're going to buy for their residence, there's a lot of people that are interested in that. And if you can make that deal where you're not one of five or 10 or 20, obviously you can probably get a better deal and maybe make some more creative solutions that fit for what that person is looking for. And I'm sure there's plenty of interesting stories that you go into as far as how you can negotiate with those sellers. But I want to come back to just something that's probably more simple that maybe people are thinking about is how do you even evaluate rental real estate? Like what are key metrics or things that people would need to understand? And then maybe we can then go into good resources that you've used in the past or things that you've found that have been helpful for your learning as you've gone through it. Because there's nothing better than obviously doing it to learn like, ooh, don't want to do that again. But there are a lot of good resources out there that I'm sure you've utilized. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of tackle this in two parts because I think the very first part, which isn't directly answering your question, but it is you need to figure out what you want real estate to do for you, right? So I'm kind of speaking more to veterinarians that may be listening you really need to know how much time do I want to dedicate to this? How much effort do I want to put in? Because this really dictates what type of real estate you might go look for and then eventually purchase. If your calendar is full and you're working 60 hours a week and you have kids at home and like you just can't fit any more on your plate, you probably don't want to go buy a fix and flip project and try to do it yourself because you're just setting yourself up for failure. So in those situations, maybe you're looking for something more passive. If you're looking to start maybe scaling back your veterinary hours, and you have an interest in design, and you like creating spaces, then maybe a fix and flip is for you. So that would be step one is know what you're looking for and know what you can dedicate to the deal. Otherwise, you're just setting yourself up from failure from the start. So Once you know that, then when we want to start taking some action, I would say the most valuable, I mean, you can read books. If you're starting sort of at ground zero, a few basic books are going to help you. I do find a lot of people get stuck in analysis paralysis where they just read books, but they don't do anything. And so that doesn't help. So the thing that will drive you forward the most is getting around like-minded people. So pretty much every market that I'm aware of, if you just Google, you're going to find meetups for real estate investors. There are some big brands like Bigger Pockets comes to mind that are sort of national brands where they have meetups in all different cities. That would be my first step is get around like-minded people that are doing it. It's no different than becoming a veterinarian. What's the first thing you do? You go to vet school and you're surrounded by other people that want to be veterinarians and professors that are veterinarians. So you just got to get in that room. That's the first step. Yeah. And when you think about evaluating deals, and again, this isn't going to be all inclusive, but I think there's a couple key terms that are always important to understand. And I think one that gets thrown around a lot that is a little different if you're not in the real estate world, which is cap rates. Can you explain like 
what that means. Is this important? What are good cap rates? And just maybe unpack that a little bit. As someone that's not a real estate investor, I've had enough conversations where maybe I know a little, but again, like help me understand more around why cap rates are important. Yeah. So I'll try not to get too in the weeds. Basically think of a cap rate as yield. So if something has a 6% cap rate, that's very similar to saying, if you were to invest, say $100,000, it's going to yield you 6%, right? So that's roughly what a cap rate is. So it's taking into account on an investment piece of real estate, all of the revenue you can generate, which is typically your rent, minus all of your expenses, and that will leave you with a net operating income. And then when you take that net operating income and divide it with your purchase price, that's going to get you your cap rate. So that's a way of evaluating buildings because people really want to know what is their like cash on cash return going to be? If they invest money, what kind of rate of return can they expect? So I hope that helps. Cap rate is a tricky one to explain, especially like if you're a beginner real estate investor, because like it gets into the weeds, but think of it as yield, basically. And do you track cap rates? Is that something that's important in your process or is it something that's not as impactful for what you're doing right now? It is. It's interesting because there's different ways to evaluate. So a cap rate is important and is sort of a traditional metric, but you also have to factor in interest rates, right? Because a cap rate is assuming you bought the building in all cash, which is not very common. Most people are getting mortgages on their real estate investments. And so when we get in these environments where interest rates are dropping and are super low, that's where you start to see people are more willing to accept a lower cap rate because their cost of debt is low. So they can still make those numbers work, right? Like it still services the debt and they still get a little bit of cash flow. I try to stick to cap rates, like in my market in Saskatoon, in the apartment buildings that I'm investing in, a 6% cap rate is pretty normal. And I'm seeing some vendors, so some sellers trying to sell their product at 4%, which, so as the cap rate lowers, the value increases and I won't pay that because that's the margins too skinny then, right? And we were talking offline. I would say for anyone listening, that's thinking about getting into real estate and I'm a huge real estate fan but you have to stress test your numbers. Just because interest rates are super low today and prices are skyrocketing, that doesn't mean that's going to go on forever, right? So you have to be prepared for interest rates to rise and be able to absorb that. So you need to be cash flow positive when you're purchasing. It's interesting talking about interest rates because we talked a little bit in our intro call about macro, which is just kind of taking the big picture that's out there. And one of the big investment macro themes that's been out there is that we've seen falling interest rates for call it close to 40 years. So they kind of peaked in the early 80s. And so if you have parents that maybe their first mortgage was 12, 14%, and I, my wife and I are actually in the process of actually buying a home off market, which is the only reason that we, we were interested in moving forward because of just how crazy the market is. But you look at interest rates for different things and it's three, four, five. Sometimes people are getting in the twos. Like it's wild to see interest rates be so low. Do you think falling interest rates has helped support real estate as an investment? And do you think that changes as interest rates maybe rise? Now we can debate back and forth if interest rates really will be able to rise or not. But 
What do you think about that? Yeah, the short answer is yes. I think it's played a role. My training, the people I've followed have always included interest rates more as an influencer of real estate, not a full on driver, right? So when I talk about a driver of real estate, you're looking at like population growth and population trends, GDP growth in a market, like where are the jobs being created? And interest rate was always this other thing that you factor in. It feels like though, as interest rates have just dropped and dropped and dropped, that's playing more of an effect because up here, I know Canada's a little bit different. I've renewed some of my mortgages, 1.5%. Like it's astronomically low to think that you can borrow hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars below 2% cost of debt, right? You know, and it gets to be like the argument starts to become that's lower than inflation. So it's like, in theory, your cost of borrowing is almost zero. Absolutely. I wanted to touch on that, but I want to back up a second and just talk about down payments. Because you talked about using borrowed money to make those purchases that someone's not going out and buying the first rental property with, hey, here is the whole entire amount that I've saved for a while. Can you talk kind of through that process of maybe the differences of what you've seen of buying single family homes versus buying apartments and maybe the amount of a down payment that's needed? Because I would assume from my understanding, talking to some people that are similar, there's a big difference in how much you need to be putting down for those deals. Yeah. And maybe I'm wrong. So correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I mean, the rules are different depending on how you're buying it. So I know if it's your principal residence and you are going to live there and you have strong employment income to support it, you can get into places for as low as like 5% down. On the investment side, at least up in Canada, 20% is much more the norm. So you'll need a 20% down payment and you can borrow you know, 80%, like the remainder of the purchase from a bank, going even a little more into the weeds. And this is definitely way more of an experienced play. Our recent purchase, like our eight plex that we're buying, in theory, we're putting none of the down payment because we're getting the seller to actually hold the mortgage on the property. And then we have another investor that's loaning the money because what we're going to do is we're going to drive the value up so high refinance it in about a year and pay everyone out. So you can actually own real estate with no money down. I'm not trying to like pitch that and sell anything with it. Like those are very specific deals and you need to know what you're doing, but it is possible. Yeah. And then have you been able to collateralize or take the properties that you own and then borrow against those to then reinvest back into other properties? So I know that's absolutely something that you can do. Is that a strategy you would think can make sense if you, again, the numbers align and you're doing it responsibly and don't get over your skis to where you have a bad 2008 or some terrible experience where everything can then implode on itself. Yes, that's 100% been our strategy. So we will acquire properties. Usually it's like every five years or so we'll refinance them. We have some that we're doing after two years if we can renovate and drive value up, pull that money out and then use it to buy more property. But you hit the nail on the head where When you refinance, you can't paint yourself into a corner. You still have to make sure your property can support it and that you're cash flow positive because that's where you can really get in trouble if the market turns down. Yeah. You need to make sure you factor in, hey, maybe there's not tenants in these places for a while. And what happens if multiple of those happen all at the same time? All the work for years and years can go to the wayside. What do you think is the biggest risk to real estate investors today? I would say the biggest risk today is... But purchasing incorrectly. Now, the catch with real estate investing, you're not going to know that you made a bad purchase for several years later. 
And so what I'm seeing right now, it's like the classic saying, when the taxi driver starts telling you about how hot real estate is, it's probably a sign that you should just step back. And so things are so frothy and hot. And the, you know, the sexiest thing in real estate is I bought a property for 200,000 and two years later, it's worth 500,000 and I made all this money. And so everyone's focusing on the appreciation and they forget that you have to be able to keep making those mortgage payments and paying your bills. So they stop focusing on cash flow. So I would say the biggest risk is an investor getting caught up in the low interest rates and the rapid rising appreciation, overpaying for a property that can't support itself if interest rates go up and rents drop and we cool down. That's, I would say, the biggest risk by far. Yeah, wise words. Um, thinking about our conversation and switching a little bit, just the idea of how you spend your time and how you view, I guess, just money in general. Has that shifted from going through vet school, where you're at today, and then how you define and look at not only like wealth, but life and money. Talk me through a little bit of that. Okay, this is going to be fun. This is my favorite topic to talk about. So I know people kind of know me as a real estate investor. To be honest, like I like real estate, but I don't really care about it as much as I care about what can real estate do for me and my family's life, right? And so real estate and money. So my view on money has completely changed. So going all the way back to the original story, I always thought money was something you have to work for. Like I have to exchange my time to get money and then I will spend that money and then that process will repeat every day, day after day. And hopefully I can squirrel away a little bit and enough that someday I'll stop working and hopefully I die before I run out of money. That was like my playbook. Where I'm at now is I view money as a tool. And so I use money to go and buy assets and those assets work for me and produce income. And that income keeps being produced, whether I'm awake or whether I'm sleeping or whether I'm on vacation. And in theory, I can live forever and I'll never run out of money because those assets just keep producing ongoing income. So that's the biggest shift I've experienced from 2008 when I graduated to today in 2021. If I was to ask you to define what wealthy means, how would you define that? For me, I'm stealing this sort of from someone else, but it would be the ability to do what I want, when I want, with who I want to. So freedom, if I had to put it into one word. Yeah. Freedom and time, the things that you can't necessarily get back from that standpoint. Yeah. And just to add to that, time freedom is very important. And that'll be when you talk with people, they'll talk about time freedom, they'll talk about money freedom, but there's more to it too. I read a great book. It was called Who Not How, and they talk about relationship freedom. So the ability to, again, do what you want with who you want to do it with, and then freedom of purpose. So to take on passion projects like our podcast, that's something I wouldn't be able to do if I was in full on survival mode, having to work 60 or 80 hours a week to get that paycheck to feed my family, right? So the time freedom... Money, freedom, very important, but relationship and purpose are very seldomly talked about, but really important. Let's touch on the podcast, the genesis of how it got started, topics, who your target audience is and kind of who you've had on as guests and anything you've learned as you've gone through the podcast and kind of favorite parts or anything like that. Yeah. So the genesis of the podcast, 
So I'm doing it with my really good friend, Jonathan. He's a veterinarian as well. We went to the same vet school and we talked all the time and we'd always chat about like what's going on in the veterinary industry and, you know, life in general. And I came at it from the angle of very much my experience, right? Where I kind of felt trapped and financially I wanted to break free and create sort of a different lifestyle for myself. Jonathan has more practice management, operational experience, and we both wanted to give back to veterinarians. So that would be our target audience and just help them live sort of better, more fulfilled, more intentional lives. And we're like, well, let's start a podcast and let's only talk about that. So we don't talk about medicine. We don't talk about surgery, like tactical how to. We only talk about topics that like, as a veterinarian, what can improve your life? So personal finance, mental health, as you talked about, Jonathan's going into like practice management, practice financials. How can you run your business better? Anything that helps to support the lives of veterinarians, because that's what it's really all about, in my opinion. And then kind of switching back a little bit to what we were talking about from an investment standpoint in real estate. So you have built something that's special, right? Like I'm impressed. I'm sure a lot of people would be impressed with what you've been able to build. A lot of that's been concentrated in real estate. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about diversification, concentration, and just how you've done that? Because I think there's the old adage, concentration builds wealth, diversification keeps it. Do you agree, disagree, thoughts? I do agree. Now, this is something I'm very recently pivoting on. When I came out of the gates, like in 2008, I mean, my net worth is basically zero, right? Like you're just starting out I was fortunate in that I didn't come out of vet school with debt. And I mean, I have my parents to thank for that. That wasn't my doing. But I totally agree with concentration builds wealth. I think when you're starting out, you need to find your area and go all in on it and just create and produce value. If you're a veterinarian and you want to own a veterinary practice, awesome. Focus on running that business well and sort of get your financial plane off the ground. You've got to get going. Once you get sort of established, then I think that's where diversification comes in and start playing a little bit more defense for if something goes wrong. So we have recently started doing that. I track my net worth quarterly and we were up to like 90% of our net worth in real estate assets. And I was like, okay, this is getting excessive. We need to start backing off. And so now as we sell some of these properties, I am diversifying into the stock market, like into equities. I've been picking your brain about crypto. I will probably take a small position in the crypto market. Private businesses is something I'm exploring as well, right? So being a business owner. For me personally, I'm not saying this is for everyone. I want to get my real estate holdings closer to like 40 to 50% of my net worth, probably 50 because I'm kind of a real estate guy. But now I'm in that balancing out phase of my life. I love what you just kind of talked through as far as different things. And I always talk about, especially being young, you have to concentrate. Diversification is not something that's as important, especially when you're younger. I look at myself, like I'm very concentrated in kind of two different areas. Like we've talked about when I talked to the Vet Financial Summit, when it comes to kind of Bitcoin holdings and then my ownership in the firm, the wealth management financial planning firm, those are the two biggest holdings and drivers of what I have going on personally. So for me, that is kind of the two concentrated bets that I have. And I think it's important the same way, make the bet on yourself. You've spent all that time, blood, sweat and tears to go get your DVM, like go make that if that's what you want to do. That's the investment. Go 
capitalize on that. But yeah, I think there's so many other ways to do it. And you don't have to take the same clinical, you're going to work for 30 years doing the same thing. I think what I've been really impressed with conversations with veterinarians lately is how fluid and how many options and how many other things that they can build with the skill set that they have to where you can say, oh, yeah, I can take some of these things that I've learned and go build something really great, even without being a practice owner and have a ton of success with it. So it's fantastic. And the knowledge that you gain as a veterinarian is powerful. You can apply to a lot of other places exactly like you have. Yeah. I have a few thoughts on that. I'm so happy to hear you say that. I've been an advocate like diversification is dilution in your early phases. So I'm happy to hear you also promoting that because the messaging I got when I was younger was like immediately diversify. And it's like, well, you can't get any momentum then. And then to your comments on veterinarians, I think coming through vet school, sure, we learn all this awesome medical and surgical knowledge, but it's really our ability to problem solve is the number one skill we learn. And whether you're applying that to a patient that's in front of you or to a business problem or to changing the course of veterinary medicine through some new technology, whatever it is, that's your skill set is you're a problem solver. And so when you would ask what's been kind of one of my learnings of our podcast, it's the connecting with people. And we chat with all these amazing people and they're doing stuff I've never even heard of. And you're like, wow, that is amazing. And they've carved out a niche and they're successful in something I didn't even know existed. As we wrap up, is there any question, I typically ask this, any question that you have for me? I am, again, swiping this similar to what you talked about, you know, with your statement on wealthy. Uh, I swiped this from another podcast I really like. Anything top of mind, question that you'd like to pose my way? Yeah, I'm winging this. My question would be, why don't more people, because this really applies to everyone, but I'll zone in even on veterinarians. Why don't more veterinarians take charge of their financial life. I see a lot of people that are more passive and sort of passengers on it. They avoid money conversations. That would be my question. If you can solve a problem for the veterinary industry, solve that one. I think it's a great question and I don't have the perfect answer, but I think a lot of it ties back to finances and the way that we look at money is so much, it's innately built in us as we grow up and it's kind of what is modeled from parents. And so one of my favorite questions that I ask is what did money mean growing up to you? early on in my conversations with people that may become clients, because it helps me then understand where did they come from and maybe what were the issues. And I've heard all kinds of interesting, wild stories, but it gives you a glimpse into how things were shown to them of, oh yeah, my parents never really budgeted. We used a lot of credit cards and no was not an answer. We just always did things and it just kind of worked out. Well, your parents, they couldn't retire and they're still working a part-time job at 75. So, okay, that makes more sense, right? Or you know what? My parents were big Dave Ramsey people and I look at money as scarcity and I won't take on debt. And I'm just really nervous about my student loans. And how can I go and borrow for a practice? That's just so much debt. I can't take on more debt. And I think that's the wrong answer, right? Like there's just so many things that people have been taught and we only know one way because it's what's shown. And I would say personally, me, my parents were definitely more in the scarcity debt is evil type of mentality. And I don't believe that at all now. And the same thing that a lot of parents talked about, you know, you have to own your own home. Like renting is wasting money. And I don't agree with that either. So there's a lot of preconceived notions that we pick up on as kids that never leave. And so I think that and trying to identify that is probably the biggest thing. So just look back if you're listening to this and thinking like, okay, what did my parents do? And then especially when you marry and you have a spouse or a partner or someone else that is in your life, their worldview on money is so different. And that is partially why there's so much conflict 
in marriages and why money is a cause of divorce is because you have these two worlds collide that may be polar opposites. So I think having the money conversation early on before you get married is important. But again, that's probably the way I'd answer. I don't know if that's an answer, but it's just more thoughts and ramblings. <laughs> no, I think it's a great answer. And I think it's a valuable conversation in the veterinary industry is to be challenging your beliefs about money. I mean, I look at it even as like your context around money, because there's all this information out there. But if you haven't developed the mindset where you can actually absorb that information, it's kind of wasted on you, right? So you have to challenge those beliefs, be willing to look and potentially accept new ones. I think it's a valuable conversation to keep having. Absolutely. We, I want to find this real quick because we put it on our website because the idea of information, there's so much information out there and there's so much free information. This quote from Derek Sivers is on our website. It says, if more information was the answer, then we'd all be billionaires with perfect abs. And the reason is because it's all out there. It's, do you have the time, energy, and do you have the desire to want to do it? Or do you want to say, I'm going to focus on and concentrate on what I'm best at and then figure out, are there other people? Are there other partners or other ways to do it? Similar to how, as you've grown, maybe you did everything initially, but now you have property management, you have some contractors, you have people that you trust around you that you can say, you know what, I'm going to allow you to do what you do best and it frees up you to do whatever you want. So I think that's really powerful. Any closing thoughts, any other things that maybe we didn't get into? I didn't ask that you're like, man, I just really, this is super important for people to hear. This is on my mind right now. You know, I I maybe just go a touch deeper on the money piece because it's so emotional. As you said, people are going to have attachments to that. This is one of my like wishes for the veterinary industry is trying to help figure out how people can use money as that tool to start crafting their life. You know, so I'm more just repeating what you said. I don't have a way to like wrap that up, but just encourage people to set some time aside and really go into it. And even if the emotions aren't comfortable, spend some time there and try and figure it out because I mean, money is just money. It's paper. It's just a tool and it's going to do exactly what you tell it to do, right? So it's a huge opportunity to create like a really intentional, purposeful life, I feel. I agree. I think having intention and spending money or using money for things that actually bring joy and not trying to impress others or do things that are things that you feel like your parents want you to do or other people around you is super important. But as a handoff, plug where to find the podcast, where to connect with you if there's any good spot online and yeah, any other closing thoughts? Yeah. So for tracking myself or our podcast down, kind of the usual social media channel. So I'm michaelbug.dvm. Our podcast is The Veterinary Project. So Instagram, Facebook is where you can find those. We do have websites coming, but they're not launched yet. So just kind of the usual places. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Real estate's a tough thing to talk through. I think having people take action and not get stuck with just trying to have all the education and knowledge and sometimes going out and get your hands dirty will provide so much more knowledge. And that's one thing that, that I definitely took away. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you, Isaiah. It was fun. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice.
All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review that'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.